Well, as I mentioned earlier, this is family month. We put a little pause on our normal exposition, which we have been in Romans for the last two years, and we draw our attention to some kind of uh, practical Christian living matters, especially related to the home and family and marriage, and that's what we're doing uh, today. Gender is my assigned topic. Guess who assigned it to me? I did, actually. I assigned it to myself. And I did so because, if, if, uh, unless you've been on an island, you know that these past few years have been nothing short of a revolution in the area of gender in Western civilization, in the United States of America. And we have seen the deconstruction of human gender in our society and the attempt to reconstruct gender without God. And suddenly we have these new and, and potentially confusing words that are thrown around, assuming that we all know what they mean and we all agree with it. You know, if, you, if you're uh, following media at all, these are familiar words. Words like binary, cisgender, transgender, intersectionality, gender dysphoria, LGBTQ, pansexual, bisexual, omnisexual. I mean, Webster's Dictionary can hardly keep up, much less the rest of us. Like, okay, what does that one mean exactly? It's hard, it's hard to know. And you might say, well, but really, is, isn't this kind of an academic discussion that's happening in the, you know, the hallowed halls of higher education. Uh, No, this is very much in the world around us and in the schools around us and in the homes around us. To give you an idea of how much this is a part of our life now, I recently uh, was online and I was buying tickets on American Airlines. Uh, And I was filling out the form and I get to the place where it says gender and I click the little pop down window, and I had three options. I, was, I could pick male, I could pick female, or I could pick non-binary. There's a new word for you, if you didn't know that one. Non-binary. Did you know that Facebook allows you, when you sign up, you have 71 different gender options that you can pick? So Mark Zuckerberg says there's 71. I think that number is in flux regularly. God says something about gender, and we ask the question, who should we trust on this matter? Now, you might be here and you say, okay, but I don't fly, and I'm not on social media, so how relevant is this in my own life? Do you go to the bathroom? Anybody here not go to the bathroom? Because this now is also a battleground on what gender is and what gender means. Who you might see in the men's or women's bathroom is different now than it was 10 or 15 years ago. You can't be sure who you're going to see in the bathroom. Why? Because today, just because you are born with a male sexual chromosome doesn't necessarily mean that you are identifying in your gender as being male, and if not, then you maybe are trending towards the female bathroom, or 
vice versa. This reality led our church lawyers, you might remember, a year ago or two now, we, uh, they, they drafted a whole new section for the constitution of our church that now has a bathroom policy. When I was in seminary, did I ever think that someday in the founding documents of our, the church that I'm pastoring, that we would need to have a bathroom use policy? No, I didn't see that. Doctrine, yes. Church polity, yes. Who uses what bathroom? I didn't see that one coming, okay? But such is the day, such is the day that we live in. Now, as I talk about this today, I want to be clear that this is somewhat a message of information, and I hope some inspiration. This is not a rant against the way things are in society today, and it is by no means a rant against anybody who struggles with gender identity. To the contrary, what I'd like to do is present God's plan for gender not only as true and biblical, but more redemptive and ultimately more satisfying than any other gender lifestyle. And further, I would, I would like to, as best I can as a senior pastor, establish in our church that this is a safe place for people who struggle with gender identity. I think too many Christians, we, we have certain categories of sin or struggle that we say these are sort of acceptable and you know, it's okay. And then we, we put struggles of sexuality, uh, whether that be heterosexuality or otherwise, or gender in a sort of category, and we think to ourselves, now these are ones that we, we, cannot, we cannot tolerate. And what I want to say is just because that isn't your struggle doesn't give you or I the right to be the priest passing on the other side of the road because we see somebody over here struggling in this particular area, in this, bro this broken world that we live in. So if you happen to be a person here without any struggle, with any implication of the fall in any sort of way, would you please come forward because we would like to worship you right now. Seeing none, I'll move on. So here's what I want to do. I want to walk through God's plan for gender. What does the Bible tell us about God's plan for gender? I'd like to show how Jesus affirms that plan and then deal with our culture's attempt to redefine gender and to show how Jesus doesn't redefine it, but he does ultimately redeem it. And so let's talk about the story of human gender. Where where did human gender come from? Today, the argument is that it's a social construct. It's something that is just, we've kind of come up out of a patriarchal system, and it's not rooted in anything, and therefore it's up for debate and argument. What I am asking here now is, by gender, I don't simply mean gender sex, and by sex, I don't mean reproduction. I mean, where did those XY chromosomes come from? And where did the XX chromosome come from? And where did the correlating sexual plumbing, genitalia, come from? And we look in the Bible, and the Bible tells us where all of that aspect of who we are came from. And here it is. In Genesis 1, verse 27, it says this. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, 
he created them. Now, this is one of the most important verses in in all of the Bible, certainly, because it tells us so much about what it means to be a human being and God's purpose for for us and how we live that out. And, And notice the emphasis here that human beings are created in the image of God. This is what gives us our inherent dignity and our inherent worth. This is what separates us from the animal world. We are, we are not the same as them. We have, we have a mind, we have emotions, we have a will, and perhaps most importantly, God placed within us a spiritual yearning. Human beings want to connect with something, somebody greater than ourselves in a relationship that we would call worship. Now our focus today is on how and why God chose to create us, notice, in his image, male and female. I mean, he could have made us pink and purple or, you know, uh, ice and water or pick your, because he's God, he could do whatever he wanted, but in his sovereign will and purpose, he made us in his image, male and female. And female. And notice that it is both male and female that reflect his, his image. It is somehow mysteriously male and female together that reflect the character of God. Both are in his image. Both male and female share the same human dignity, the same worth, therefore, derived from our Creator. Now, this is not to say that God is a sexual being because he is not a sexual being. The Bible consistently uses male pronouns to associate with God, probably because of God's leadership and authority that would call for such. But somehow there is is something about male and female that together reflect the fullness of who God is. And I would say that we should be glad about this, don't you think? I mean, let's just imagine that that God, all God did was make males. That all there were in this world were, were men. The whole world, it would, it would look and smell like a men's locker room. It would be terrible, wouldn't it? We should be glad, males. Are we glad that God made females? Oh, so glad, amen to that. I won't ask the, the reverse on that question. <laughs> But imagine with me if, if all that God had decided to do was make females. I mean, what a different world this would be, summarized by a question I received from my daughter on the way to school, uh, where we're driving down the road, I'm, I'm, I'm taking to drop him off at school, and out of the blue, she says from the back seat, she says, Daddy, what if all the world was pink? <laughs> that thought has never crossed my mind, I gotta say. <laughs> But you make the world all female, and that's where things trend, I think. Now, critics would say I'm utilizing patriarchal stereotypes and even uh, making those statements, and perhaps I am. But what we have to see in the text here is that human gender is a created reality by God. It is grounded in something. There is a basis for it. It is not a social construct. And it is God's idea and rooted in God's character. So therefore, it is divinely defined. You know, it's kind of like marriage. You can, you can, society can call marriage whatever it, it wants, but marriage as God designed and defined is, is defined by God. And gender, likewise, 
you know, professor so-and-so and, you know, this person or whatever, can, they can say whatever they want to, but God is the one who says what is gender and what is male and female. Now, you might say, okay, well, let me grant you the possibility that Genesis 1 is teaching that. But, but what, if, what if we're misunderstanding it? What if, what if we're not quite getting it right? And this is where <coughs> we say, well, what if there was a great, great, great teacher of the past, somebody that everybody admired, some of you maybe had a, a little extra insight into God's purpose for gender, who affirms that God made them male and female. Would that... Would that matter and what if his name was Jesus because this indeed is is the case we get to the gospels and God uh, Jesus gives a commentary on Genesis 1 and here it is Mark 10 and, and Matthew 19 I have it here you can I'll be flipping around here today so just follow along as best you can here's here's what Jesus says in Mark 10 but from the beginning of creation God made them Male and female. Now here's the Matthew 19. This is two accounts of the same episode in Jesus' life. He answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? Jesus is answering the question here of the viability of divorce. That's the broader context. Should anybody ever be divorced? And he answers the question by going back to Genesis 1 and back to God's original created purpose, not just for marriage, but for gender, for male and female. He affirms God's purpose in this, and he adds the unity of human gender. He says it is a God-ordained, God-established unity. Here's Matthew 19, verse 6. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Okay, get that, not three, not five, not 71. They, those two are now one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Now over time, we typically think about man separating God's original purpose in marriage being a, man, a, a husband and a wife divorcing. And I think in context, that's what it means. But if you redefine male or female or marriage, you are separating marriage and gender from their divinely ordained purpose. So when it comes to defining male and female, here's what the Bible says, and this is a key point, if you're going to understand the broader debate. The Bible says biological sex at birth is God's created purpose for that individual in terms of their gender. The Bible clearly teaches there are two genders, male and female. Science tells us that God gives males XY chromosomes, and with very rare exceptions, rare people born without them, genitalia that corresponds to maleness. And women are given XX chromosomes and genitalia that corresponds to femaleness. So God's identity, therefore, is gender identity that corresponds to sex at birth. Now, that's a really controversial thing to say, and largely in our society today is um, perhaps scoffed at. But we must also see one more thing about this, and that is that all of this Genesis 1, male, female, in the image of God, all of it is prior to the fall. Now, why is that important? 
Because you get to the end of Genesis 1, and God steps back from all of his creative work, and he looks at everything that he has done. He looks at the galaxies, he looks at the atoms. He looks at the oceans, he looks at the mountains. He looks at the animals, and he looks at Adam and Eve right down to their sexual plumbing. And he says what? It is very good. And that word there for good is, it, it means uh, uh, morally good, but also morally beautiful. Morally beautiful. And that includes that Adam was a male and Eve was a female, reflecting by human gender the image of God. All right, so we're laying a foundation here. Quick summary, what have we said so far? Human gender is God's design. There are two human genders, male and female. These correspond to our sex at birth. God's purpose in human gender is that they together and equally reflect his likeness. And God calls gender, human gender, very, very good. Now I could just stop there and say, hey, that's uh, what the Bible says. That's been the practice of most of human civilization and certainly Orthodox Christianity for all these years. Be warmed and filled. Actually, be warm, go, we're done. And that would be basically a foundation of uh, theology of human gender. Because you look at that and you say, okay, that seems fairly straightforward. So what is all the fuss about? What is all of the, of, of, of the fuss and all of the talk and all of the debate how does Facebook see 71 different human gender options? Like, what is going on here? And to understand this, we have to, again, see it biblically. And I'm going to go back to Romans 1. If you were here in the series, we'd walk slowly through Romans 1. And one very important part in Romans 1, which says this, describing mankind after the fall. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. What was the fall? What happened in Genesis 3 when Adam and Eve sinned against God? Well, it was a rebellion for sure, but it was also a rejection of God and the replacement of God in the human heart. Oh, okay, well, replacing it with what? Well, he says here the creature, but what creature is our Adam and Eve most interested in elevating and enthroning in their heart? It is me, right? The enthronement of Self, the elevation of man, the displacement of God, the replacement with man, a refusal to worship our creator. Romans 3 goes on to say we all fall short of the glory of God. We all fall short of God's intended purpose for every aspect of who we are to be lived to the glory of God. All of that, we fall short of that. And we live in a day now, and, and this has been true ever since Genesis 3, we live with the effects of mankind rejecting the creator and worshiping the creature, of rejecting God and worshiping self. In this shattered society that we live in, with all, every problem in this world and every problem in your life in some way is correlated to the rebellion and Genesis 3 and sin. And that includes the big scale of war and violence 
and it includes the smaller scale, like the terrible flu season that we're experiencing here. All of it, the result of sin. But what does it look like on the most personal level of self-identity? What does it look like for, if, if I was to say, God, I reject you, and I reject everything about you, and I reject everything about who you say I am, I'm going to reject it to the, I'm going nuclear with this. What does that look like on the level of personal self-identity? What if we rejected male and female, he created them? What does that look like? in society. But this is a difficult thing because how do you reject something? How do you reject a created purpose that you can see in the shower every morning? How do you do that? And here I think is where things get a little confusing, so hang with me. But to understand what's going on today, you gotta get this point. We must understand rejecting God, not simply, again, as the, as the removal of God, but the replacement of God. And we have now in society this radical individualism where there are, there are almost like scriptural principles that are religiously believed like you must be yourself. You have to be true to yourself. Nobody can tell you who you should be. Most Disney movies based on this principle, I would say. Uh, it's a kind of gender existentialism where the self defines the self in every category, but that also includes the category of gender. A rejecting of biological sex as the determinative for what gender I have to live out. Do you see the connection here? Again, Genesis 3, Romans 1, mankind rejecting everything that God has said is true or is true about us. What does it look like on the gender level? It looks like this. The separating of those two things, biological sex from gender lifestyle, and defending the right of the individual to live any, jolly well any way that they want to. Whatever gender he or she or she chooses to be. Again, did you get that? The separation of biology or birth sex from gender. Genitalia from gender, chromosome, from gender. What sexual plumbing you might have has no bearing at all on the kind of gender lifestyle you choose to live out. And this includes whether you are a gendered male or female, heterosexual or pansexual or homosexual or bisexual or whatever sexuals, again, 71 choices on Facebook, there are no rules except the individual is God over their lifestyle. That sound familiar? That's the day that we live in today. Listen to Andrew Walker. He says it this way. Our culture says your psychology is your sexual identity. Let your, I'm sorry, this is Sam Alberry. Your psychology is your sexual identity. Let your body be conformed to it. The Bible says your body is your sexual identity. Let your mind be conformed to it. Huge distinction there. Here's Andrew Walker. The ideological assumptions driving the transgender revolution did not even exist until very recently. 
This revolution required certain epistemological and moral shifts in order for it to emerge as legitimate. Transgenderism is birthed out of Western society's challenges to the institution of marriage and out of the project of social revolutionaries to redefine sexuality and normalize same-sex relationships. These shifts deconstructed objective social norms and instead advocated a social construction of reality. And friends, you may or, not, may or may not realize it, you and I, we are living in a revolution. This is nothing short of a revolution in our society. But it did not start with a politician, and it didn't start with a bathroom policy, and it didn't start with a Supreme Court decision. It started way back when Adam and Eve decided they wanted a garden without God. Now, here's the fascinating thing. Here we are. What, what year is it? I forget. 2020. How long have human beings been living out human gender? Hundreds, thousands of years. How many people have done it? Billions of people have been living this out. And yet, in 2020, here today, we still don't know what it means to be a human being. We don't know who we are. We don't know what it means to be a man or a woman. As Francis Schaeffer said it, we are people with our feet firmly planted in midair. That's the world we live in. Young people, you need to see these things I'm talking about and what lies behind so much of what is presented to you as socially expected or what is normal. Do you understand what is actually going on? I want to help you a little bit today with this. You know, I think about uh, the gender revolution. The most significant gender moment in my whole life was when Olympic star Bruce Jenner redefined himself as Caitlyn Jenner. I'm sure you're all aware of this. When I was writing this message, I thought, hey, I'll pop up that picture, the famous Vanity Fair picture of, of Caitlyn Jenner. And I actually went back and I looked at it. I hadn't seen it for a while. I looked back and I said, you know what? I don't think I want to put that up as uh, provocative as as it is. But I mention it because one of the books that I read on the subject, written by Andrew Walker, I mentioned him earlier, he ends his whole book by talking about Caitlyn Jenner and that photo and the fact that in that photo, they hid Caitlyn's hands. Did you notice that? They hid the hands. Why? Because you can airbrush and you can make up and you can, uh, you know, do all these little tricks, but you can't hide the man hands. And what he does is he suggests that picture itself is a picture of our society as a whole, that we're living in a day trying desperately to remake itself and to create a new reality apart from God's created purpose for us. And he suggests there that, that uh, there's always reminders of God's purpose for us. Caitlin's hands a reminder of God's purposes. In a way, our society, it's like Jason Bourne. Like we, you know, we, we suffer this kind of amnesia. We're, we're not sure who we are. We're, we're trying to figure out, you know, who am I? We, we, uh, we, we had these little flashbacks where we remember that we used to be something important, something great. We have these powerful capacities, but we're still searching for our identity. We don't know who we are. And fundamentally, this really is 
a question of authority. In fact, this question might determine how you feel about this message as you leave here today. Who is the authority on all these things? Is the Bible the authority? Is God's purpose the authority? Or do we just get to create our own reality and slap any label we want on whatever we come up with? Christopher Yuan is a Moody Bible professor, and if you know a little bit about his story, he's been very public with his struggle with same-sex attraction. Now teaches Bible at Moody, and it's been a wonderful story of redemption. I would love to get him here sometime. He writes this on this subject, on desiring God. Transgenderism is not exclusively a battle for what is male and female, but rather a battle for what is true and real. And that is so true and powerful. Like, what lies behind all of this? It's that question right there. And this is where I think Christian compassion and Christian uh, love will win the day far more than condemnation. What do people that are struggling with gender identity need? And by the way, what does that mean? This is gender dysphoria. This is a common word, gender dysphoria or gender, I don't know if dysphoria, confusion maybe would be a way to say it. It is when who you are on the outside biologically is different than who you see or believe yourself to be in terms of gender on the inside. That is gender dysphoria. Can you imagine how hard that would be? Talk about a hard way to live when there is this dissonance between those two things. And this is a very real struggle that people have. And I ask the question, are those feelings necessarily sin? When I have that feeling or I have that dysphoria, is that sin? Personally, I don't think so. Any more than I would want to say other feelings that we have post-fall that we struggle with, fear, worry, etc., Dysphoria is a very difficult and painful experience. And just because it's different than the struggle that you have or I have doesn't mean that we should reject people who are struggling in this way. God's plan for all our brokenness is not rejection but is redemption. And that really is how I want to conclude my message today is to talk about how how do we redeem this? What is what is, what is uh, for our church in the years ahead? This is not going away, okay? This isn't one where we go, you know, go away, go away. Oh, now it's no, this is, here, this is here forever, in my opinion. How do we as a church function in a society where gender is as it is? I have some suggestions. Number one, we need to know and understand the terms, Okay? need to know and understand the terms. And to that end, I want to define some of the common terms. If you watch you know, the news or you watch or listen to talk radio or whatever, you're going to hear all these things. So here's a very quick tutorial on some very common words. So we begin with gender dysphoria. What is gender dysphoria? It is dissonance between my biological sex and my psychological gender who I am on the outside, and who I think I am gender-wise on the inside. Secondly, binary. Okay, if you're going to buy tickets on American Airlines, here's a word you're going to need to understand. Binary or cisgender, this is a person whose biological sex is the same as their gender identity. 
Okay, so in a way, this would be, we would say this is a more biblical position, although perhaps cisgender we wouldn't want to refer because it sort of validates other gender positions. Transgender, a person who expresses a different gender than their biological sex. And there are 700,000 people like this in the United States of America. Transgender. Okay, here's a big one, especially in politics right now. L-B-G-T-Q. Be honest, how many of you have to go sort of like, okay, what's that letter mean exactly? So let's just clarify, what do these letters stand for? L is lesbian, okay, this would be uh, a female who is attracted sexually to a female. Bisexual, which is growing in popularity, is one that will, could go either way. Gay is a reference primarily to homosexual men. Transgender, I've already defined for you, and Q, okay, Q. Q is for either queer or questioning. From what I've read, it's sort of a kind of a summary for maybe sexual minorities as a whole, but that's what Q stands for. All right, gender fluid. This is somebody who, kind of self-defining there. Their gender is fluid. They can, they can uh, identify male, they can identify female. And transvestite, a person whose dress is opposite their genetic sex. Now all of these in some uh, way see gender and sexual orientation as a social construct. In other words, I have the right to kind of define my own reality. And one helpful distinction I've heard of between sexual orientation and gender orientation says it this way, that sexual orientation is who you go to bed with. Gender identity determines who you go to bed as. And those are not the same. Now, for centuries, those were assumed to be the same, right? And if maybe you've been in a bubble for the last 15 years, you're sitting here right now going, why are we talking about these things in church? It's because this is the world that we live in. And we're called to be salt and light in and reach our Jerusalem. And our Jerusalem is consumed right now with this issue. Secondly, Know the terms. Secondly is guide our children. Guide our children. Where is the key battleground for this? It's not online. It is the children. It is the children. In the news, you hear this all the time. There's some child somewhere that is pondering. They, they wake up one day and they think, maybe I'm not a male like my biology is. I, I think maybe I'm a female. And it hits the news because oftentimes, you know, the parents or maybe one parent and not the other parent is like, hey, we've got to really affirm this and we've got to push them and we've got to, you know, we've got to see them through on this. And so they'll want to begin, you know, hormonal treatment or puberty blocking treatment. And yet the most exhaustive study ever shown or ever made shows that 80 to 95% of children with gender uh, dysphoria end up identifying with their genetic sex after puberty. That's an important statistic. 80 to 95%. You give it time, you let the pituitary gland do its thing, and most will end up identifying with their genetic sex. 
I suspect the reason that the transgender community in particular wants immediate treatment on any child that maybe is questioning is they want an ideological victory. Child by child, they want a victory. And therefore, we need to teach our children what it means to be a boy and what it means to be a girl. And this doesn't mean, by the way, the stereotypes that boys do guns and football and, you know, uh, girls, it's dolls and pinkalicious. No, that's not, that's not the key thing here. What does it mean to be a boy becoming a man? It means boys that are learning to lead and love as servants and protectors of females and relating to them in a healthy way. What does it mean to be a girl? It is girls learning to relate in feminine ways to dad and to boys while becoming godly young women. Parents, grandparents, gone are the days where you just sort of thought they get it over time. This has to be talked about and taught. And to that end, one little resource that came out recently that uh, we've read to our girls, I'll just put this out for you, is this little book, God Made Boys and Girls, Helping Children Understand the Gift of Gender. You might want to check this out. I think we're going to maybe in the future have some of these in the bookstore. But talk about it. Talk about it. Teach them. Model it, by the way. Guide our children. Third, as a church, I want to call us to love those that are hurting and struggling with gender confusion. You know, we have a saying around here, we say amongst the leadership, we say it this way, if we have to err on any side, we want to err on the side of love. That applies to a lot of things. But I think it has great application with people struggling, not just with gender, but with same-sex attraction or with the brokenness of some past gender sexual sin. Where do they go for redemption? Where do they go for help? I would love for them to turn to the Church of Jesus Christ and specifically to our church. Now let me address a question. This is a hot, hot potato question. Should we address an individual who is transgendered by their preferred gender pronoun? I'll let you think about that a second and I'm going to tell you what I think. Because personally, I think that we should by their preferred pronoun. And the reason that I say this is that in this category, there is the air war and there is the ground war. And the air war is the church is the pillar and foundation of the truth and the church standing up for what the Bible teaches about what gender should be and all the rest. That is the, the big ideological, theological, cultural, and even political battle for which Christians, we are called to be courageous and to stand for the truth. But the person that you are working with or living next to, that is not the air war. That is the ground war. That is not about the big ideological struggle. This is about a person and a relationship. They are simply living their life, and not all struggle, but many do in this area. One study says this, that after a sex change operation, an individual is 20 times more likely to commit suicide. 20 times. So if we can look past the ideological thing and see a person 
Talk about a hard struggle. Think of the years of the struggle. This is a person who has experienced tremendous pain and is hurting. And your relationship with them is not a battleground, it's a relationship. And I would recommend you calling them by whatever you, whatever they want you to call them by. Take a deep breath, it'll be okay, <laughs> all right? Because if you refuse them on that level, you are refusing them on the most core aspect of their personal self-identity. You will have no relationship, you will have no opportunity in their life. And the goal here is to see all the dysphorias of every sinner redeemed by faith in Jesus Christ. I mean, Jesus died, think of this, Jesus died for sins that flow from sexual identity confusion. And I would say if Jesus was willing to bear it on the cross, we should be able to bear it too, don't you think? Not normalizing it, by the way, or affirming it. We can never do that if we're going to hold to biblical truth. But redeeming it by the power of God and the gospel. And this is the thing. The gospel offers to the gender-bending or the gender-breaking the possibility, get this, of new creation. Of indeed a new identity that is not primarily in who I am in my sexuality or who I am in my gender, but who I am in Christ. Because that's what it means to be a Christian. There is a new identity that trumps all my other identities. In fact, in Christ, there's neither male nor female and all the rest. We're all one in Christ. And the offer of Christianity is, a, is an identity that, that overwhelms all the other identities, a most important identity. And that is who I am in Christ. A new person, a new relationship with Jesus. And this is where the church, we have a powerful opportunity, but it's not, it doesn't take new skills or tools. It's the same old Christian hospitality, Christian love that can win people to Christ. I give you one example, Rosaria Butterfield, that uh, if you, you can get online and read her story, but she was a, a, uh, a very liberal feminist uh, professor, lesbian professor, at Syracuse University. And there she is, she's teaching, she's promoting that whole ideology. Uh, but she happened to live next to a, a, a PCA pastor, Presbyterian Church of America pastor and their family. And this family just began to invite her to dinner. And so she would come over for dinner occasionally. They were nice to her and it was a pleasant experience, but they would have their family devotions and she would just sit there and sort of endure that. But guess what happened over time? Over time, she saw in the way that they were living and the way that they were loving and the way that they were relating to each other, something that was appealing and God used their neighborliness and their Christian hospitality to win her to Christ. And Rosaria Butterfield today is married to a pastor. I mean, what could be better than that? <laughs> the pinnacle of all human existence. She's married to a pastor. She writes a lot. She's written books and, and uh, speaks all over the country. God's using her in tremendous ways. Out of a lesbian, feminist, university setting and into an identity with Jesus Christ. Would that we would be that sort of church and that all of us individually in all our places as we connect with people going through all kinds of manner of dysphoria and pain and brokenness where we love them, we're neighborly to them, 
and we live out our faith before them, which is a better way to live because it's the way that God ordained. Todd Wagner, when we meet somebody who is struggling, we meet ourselves and we should lovingly point them toward the same truth we'd want them to leverage for our encouragement. That especially includes the truth that making choices against God's word won't bring ultimate joy, peace, or fullness of life. And this really is kind of correlative to my last point, which is light it up, church. Light it up. Our greatest offense in, offense in, in this struggle is to display the beauty of God's plan for human gender. It's not to, win, not to shout louder than them or to write more nasty comments on, uh, on, online uh, about them, but it is to live out God's plan for human flourishing in human gender. There's a, Jesus said that we're to be a city on a hill, and in our day, that city on a hill might just be masculine men and feminine women. And final quote. Finally, a complementarian church filled with two with loving marriages, gracious leaders, and divinely empowered men and women serving together as co-laborers for Christ and his kingdom is a powerful witness against the flawed rubric of intersection, intersectional epistemology. As complementarians, we believe that not only that gender distinctions and roles are God's design, but that they are good gifts for humanity. Let us live out this truth, adorning the gospel with the testimony of our lives. Amen to that. Let's adorn the gospel with the beauty of God's plan for human gender and be the city on a hill. Amen.